young men and women uh, like Ben in our student ministry who are just excited about God's Word. And uh, I saw Ben as he was leaving our offices one Sunday, or excuse me, one day during the week, he was talking to Gary, and he was leaving with uh, all kinds of workbooks about how to study God's Word even more deeply. And uh, I thought it was pretty cool on two things. Number one, being one of those things. And number two, Gary actually had those things. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> but, but anyway, uh, it's really cool to see how God is working in the lives of some of these uh, young people. And uh, we've got another wave of leadership coming up. And and it's so exciting to see that in our church. Well, last week, many of you have asked the question, what in the world happened here last week? Well, it was a good Sunday, I'll tell you that. Uh, there were 990 people that were on our campus last week, and uh, 900 of them got to hear the gospel, and the clearest way I knew how to bring it, uh, we had about, uh, let's see, 72 preschoolers and workers in the other building, so they earned their keep last week, uh, but it was a, a great great time. And then uh, lo and behold, some of you said, well, when are we going to start building something around here? You know, and, and I get that. I, I, I've, we, we've been tested with patience here lately. Uh, we were hoping to have drawings by March. Of course, that has not happened yet. We're expecting them anytime now uh, so we can proceed in this uh, construction that I have uh, put before you and we voted on. It's on its way. Uh, it has been limited. Now, some of it has to do with our soundproofing. You, many of you know we have an issue with a live band trying to make classrooms quieter so they can concentrate on what they're studying. That's a part of what we're going through. So we're trying to get all that just right. And uh, of course, how many of you are excited about doubling our bathrooms? You ladies excited about that? that that's coming too. All right. So I just want to thank you for being patient with us. Well, we're continuing the series three days. And uh, I think many people would say that we be, when we began this uh, two or well, three weeks ago, we looked at what we call a day of reflection and anticipation. And we, we covered the whole idea of when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, anticipating what would come the next day. And of course, we knew that would be the beatings, it would be the cross, it would be uh, the things that God the Father would do to him while he's upon the cross. And, and we knew that that was a very agonizing time for Jesus. And then all all of a sudden you fast forward past his uh, death uh, and his burial, and then you come to the resurrection, and we entitled that day a day of celebration, like we did last week, and of course his resurrection. Today I want us to talk about a day of requisition. Now, let me say this, Jesus's resurrection set in motion his return, and everything we read about his return centers around the whole idea of judgment. Now, we live in a world today that doesn't want to hear that. We live in a world today that does not want to be accountable for their actions. And, and I'm afraid we're all going to be accountable for our actions. The Bible is very clear that that is going to take place. And, and as much as we don't want to talk about it, and we want to talk about the love of God, which the love of God is vast and great and wonderful, there's still this other side that awaits and so when we begin to get our minds around that, we need to understand that Jesus' resurrection guarantees us that there will be a judgment. And so that's what we're going to be looking at. So look at the introduction. The second coming of Jesus is a future date on the calendar. It is going to happen. Uh, and so it is pronounced in John chapter 14 and also Acts chapter 1. 
Now, you notice I use the word pronounced. The word pronounced there literally means a formal author, authoritative statement. And that's exactly what it's all saying. So I want to go ahead and um, skip over to Acts chapter 1. So after Jesus' resurrection, many of you may not know this, but you need to understand this. After Jesus' resurrection, he will stay around for 40 days and he'll literally have encounters with his disciples. And for 40 days, he, he will have that. He, at one place we read in Corinthians, he was actually seen by 500 people at one time. And so all these things went on for 40 days. So he stayed around for 40 days. And then all of a sudden, he's about to go back to heaven. And that's what we're reading here in Acts chapter 1. So look at Acts chapter 1, verse 6 here on the screen. It says, therefore, when they, the disciples, had come together, they asked Jesus, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And so basically, the whole theme of the disciples before Jesus' death was, when are we going to? When are we going to uh, overcome Rome? When are when, when are you going to restore the kingdom? Now that he's been resurrected, guess what their theme is still? God, when are you going to do this? And, and so he looks at Jesus, and Jesus is there, and he said to them, Jesus said to them, "It's not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father has put in His own authority." But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Now, when he had spoken these things, while they watched, now this is interesting, he's actually saying his parting words to them, and the picture that we get here from the scriptures, he's lifting off the ground. How many of you would say, now that is pretty cool? And that's exactly what's happening. So as he's being lifted off the ground, he was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. And they looked steadfastly towards heaven as he went up. And behold, two men stood by them in white apparel who also said, men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up to heaven? This same Jesus who was taken from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. Now, I want you to think about this. When, what's being said here is Jesus is leaving. He, he was here for 40 days after his resurrection. He's leaving, and he will not be back until we have what is called the second coming. The second coming. And so he hasn't been back since. We've been waiting on him for 2000, over 2,000 years now. And that's the scene that we're reading. Now, think about this. The Old Testament prophets spoke of his coming. Some referred to his first coming. Some referred to a second coming. Now, here's some facts about the second coming that we need to know. It is not to be confused with what many called the, the rapture of the church. That's a whole different matter. The rapture is something else. Uh, the rapture is when the church is going to be lifted out of the earth, basically. Those who profess and know Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior will be taken out of here. That's what the, the Bible seems to implicate. Now, the second coming, however, is, goes back to the whole idea of Acts chapter 1. Just as you saw him leave, you're going to see him come back. During the rapture, there's no evidence that anyone's going to see him when he comes and takes his church. But they will see him at the second coming. It's clear. The Bible is clear about this, and we'll talk about this in just a moment. The facts of the second coming, not, not only should it not be confused with the rapture, it will bring forth judgment. It will usher in the kingdom of God. And guess what? No one knows when this is going to happen. How many of you have ever heard of people who have predicted the coming of Jesus only to be wrong? 
I remember there's, there were some TV personalities back in the 80s and they were convinced 1984 was the year. I remember it clearly. And then all of a sudden that didn't happen. 1988, it became very clear. And then all of a sudden, people are out there trying to determine who the Antichrist is. How many of you have ever heard talk of that? You know, they got, oh, this is the Antichrist. Oh, this is, they're trying to see the times. They're trying to see it all come together. And I understand their anticipation. But the Bible's very clear when Jesus said, it's in the Father's hands. Only he knows when he's coming back. So, so let's look at this. The first thing I want you to see, however, before the second coming has to do with us. So look on your outline, the king's celebration. After Jesus ascended back to heaven, it began what is called the church age. We are living in what is called the church age. God is using the church to get his message to the world. And he, he told the church, basically, you're to take my message to the world. All right, so we're living in that time period right now. Then we have what we'll call, what many have called the rapture of the church. That's when the church will be taken out. At that time, there's going to be, during that time, there's going to be seven years of what's called the years of tribulation. You ever heard of those? Okay. Now, here's what's interesting. What happens between the rapture of the church, when the church is brought out of the world, and the second coming at the end of the tribulation period? What happens when the Bible says they were caught up in the air? What, what happens there? Well, that seems to be what we're reading in Revelation chapter 19. And so the first thing we see there is the glory of the marriage supper. So I want you to look at uh, Revelation chapter 19, look at verse seven. It says, let us be glad and rejoice. Give him glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his wife has made herself ready. The wife is the church. It's the bride of Christ. And so basically what you're seeing here is a picture of a Jewish wedding. It's the whole idea in which a, 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 groom, a groom would come and, and basically set and set the terms of the relationship between that bride. And so he would meet with the father and, and they would basically make a trade basically for, for the bride. And so all that took place. Well, in the meantime, the, bride, the, the groom would go and make preparation for his bride. And the bride would be there not knowing exactly when he would return, okay? That's a picture of that, that whole idea. So when he had his preparations done for the bride, she had her preparations, all of a sudden, they, he would come and take his bride. Now, this is a picture of what we're reading here. The marriage supper of the lamb is the celebration of that relationship. And that's the same thing that seems to be happening here the groom being Jesus and the bride, which is the church. According to what we believe, this is speaking of us. And then it says in verse eight, and to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright. For the fine linen, listen to this, is the righteous acts of the saints. It's the righteousness of the saints. Now, here's what we need to understand about this. Does our righteousness count anything towards our salvation? No, it does not, not even close. And in a moment, we're gonna read why we know that to be true. The righteousness here is speaking of the righteous acts of choosing, of, of choosing and basically aligning themselves with the provision of Jesus Christ. Because the righteousness they have means nothing. The only thing righteous they did that the bride has done or we have done is that we've reached out to the provision of Jesus Christ. That's the only thing that we've done that's brought our salvation. 
And so he's very clear here. So he's talking about how all this comes together. So we see the glory of the marriage supper. Number two, the guest of the marriage supper. Verse nine, then he said to me, of course, this is John receiving this revelation, right, blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the lamb. And he said to me, these are the true sayings of God. This will happen. You can count on it when you're looking at this. So those who are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb, it is a celebration. It is a time we'll come together around God. And, and, and many people believe this is also when we will face our own judgment. This is when the, the crowns are given out and the rewards are given out for our life here on, in, uh, here on earth. And so many people, most people don't contradict that. That seems to be the time all this is going to take place. So we see not only the glory and the guests, but thirdly, the greatness of the marriage supper. I want you to look at our reaction here in verse 10. John is writing this and he says this, and I fell at his feet to worship him. Now, this is an angel basically showing him the revelation, but look at what happens. But he said to me, see that you do not do that. The angel saying, I am your fellow servant and of your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And so what happens is John is seeing this and is blowing his mind. And he's just sitting around. He's caught up in the moment. <laughs> and he just bows down and just wants to worship. We see this clearly when it comes to this whole scene of the marriage supper. The next thing we see coming in the scripture is the king's coming, which we would call the second coming. Now, now let me just say this about the world. How many of you have heard this message? Some have said that the world is getting better. <laughs> That's hard to believe, isn't it? Some have said if we could just educate people, they would be right. Has that worked out well for us? No. If we could just break down all these barriers that keep us apart, then, then the world would be this utopia. Has that worked out that way? No. None of us worked out that way. Nothing has brought about this peace and this mandated utopia. But we continue to see chaos, civil disorder, terrorism, all of which describes the scene when Jesus comes back. Now, here's what we need to understand. Only he is capable of bringing it all together. Only he is capable of bringing the peace that we so desire in our world. And it's not gonna happen until he comes back. You say, where do you get that from? Based on the authority of scripture. It's very clear. Every time there's a reference to the end times, there's chaos. Chaos is there. It doesn't get better. It's not gonna get better with flawed people who are fallen, trying to live in a fallen world to bring about a positive result. It's not going to happen. And so we begin to see that God, through Jesus Christ, is gonna be the one to bring order and peace. And guess what? Based on scripture, it's all headed towards a battle. And the Bible calls it the battle of Armageddon. Now, some of you would say, oh, man, you're getting into the spooky stuff now. This is part of the Bible I just kind of stay away from. Uh, well, you shouldn't. This is a good thing. If you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, what we're getting ready to describe here should excite you. 
It should be one of those things that motivates you to say, yeah, you know, he's going to come back. He's going to set it all straight. How many of you are ready for someone to come set all this stuff straight? And he is. The resurrection guarantees it. So look on your outline, the king's coming. The first thing we see here is the person of the return. The person of the return. Look at verse 11 of 19. Now I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. And he who sat on him was called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except him. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood and his name is called the word of God. The word of God. Now in John chapter one, anyone who knows anything about John chapter one, who is the embodiment of the word of God? Jesus Christ. That, that's it. It's Jesus Christ. We're, we're looking at the activities of Jesus Christ. So let's break this down. When it says that heaven is open, here's what that literally means. He's saying there's an unveiling that's taking place. And it's literally, here's what's so cool about what we read in the book of Revelation. It's almost like this information has been kept from us. But John is given this information by the angel and all of a sudden the curtains are being drawn back. That's literally the picture that we have here. And we are looking into the future. How many of you that would say that's pretty exciting? It should be exciting to us. It means it's unveiling. The second thing that we see here that's very clear is a white horse. Now, I don't know about you, but a white horse, have you ever seen a white horse? They're beautiful. Jesus comes the first time, and what do we see him riding on? A donkey, a colt, a donkey. Next time he shows up, he's on a white horse. Now, how many of you would have thought that all along he should have been on a white horse? But he is coming back on a white horse. I mean, that's pretty exciting. And when you begin to look at this, you're seeing, wow, look at how this. Of course, uh, the donkey is an is a, is a animal of humility, while the second is an animal of victory. And we're seeing this. Well, how about when it says it's faithful and true? I think the reason that we see there that his name is faithful and true means he's identifying with the fact that, yes, this is going to happen. I think that's the reason we're reminded that he's faithful and true, because what he says is going to happen. And then it says, in righteousness, he judges and makes war. Now, he first came as a savior. How many of you agree with that? What, what did the disciples want him to do? He wanted them to judge people right then and there. He wanted him, him to declare war on them right there at that time. You look at some of his disciples. Some of his disciples were just ready to militarily to usher in a new kingdom. And they were sitting on go, ready to go. Matter of fact, some of them were disappointed. Many people say Judas, the betrayer, the reason he betrayed Jesus is because he wasn't doing it the way he thought Jesus should do it. He should have come here and just taken care of it then. But he is coming back to do that. And so he came first as a savior. Now he's coming back as a judge. When he first came, now this is so interesting. He was judged. Did you know that? That the king of kings is judged? Who is he judged by? Herod, Pilate, the high priest, the world itself brought judgment. 
But when he comes again, he will judge. I mean, it's amazing when you think of the difference. Heaven, listen to this, cannot be at peace with sin. Therefore, here's what we got to understand. Jesus' second coming is going to bring the peace by dealing with the sin of the world, by erasing the effects and, and the whole idea of evil. He's coming to do that. Now, not only do we see the whole idea of his activity, but his appearance. Look at what it says. His eyes were like a flame of fire. Now, many of you would say, well, that's definitely a, a picture of judgment, and it is. Now, what's interesting about this picture of judgment, it literally means nothing escapes his piercing, his piercing vision. He sees it all. He's not deceived by any of it. There, there's nothing that needs to be judged that won't be judged. That's what this means. Nothing's gonna escape that should be judged. Next, we see a head that had many crowns. Some of you may be saying, now why would, it, why would there be a reference to this? Well, you gotta go back and look at the context of what people understood back then. Now, the, crowns of, uh, the crown of thorns for crowns of victory is what we're seeing here. Now think of this. It, it implies a powerful ruler. In ancient days, conquering kings wore the crowns of the defeated kings. It was literally a picture in which they would come in and once the kings were, were they would, if, if, they, if they could keep from it happening, they wouldn't kill the king that was conquered. They would literally create a parade through the main city of, of those and they would have the kings out there humiliating those kings that they defeated, but the ruling king would wear their crown on top of their own crown. And so it shows that, that they were defeated. And that seems to be a picture that we're seeing here, that he's going to defeat all the kings that will come against him. Of course, we don't call them kings anymore. We call them other names. It says robe dipped in blood. It's a picture of redemption or the, of the slaughter of the defeated foe. It's a reminder of what was done to prepare ourselves for the second coming. And then we see the name is the word of God. Of course, there's no doubt now that this is a picture of Jesus himself. Next, we see the people of the return. Look at verse 14. And the armies in heaven clothed in fine linen, white, and clean followed him on white horses. White and clean is a reference to righteousness, to purity. And by the way, y'all, none of us can make ourselves pure enough. None of us can make ourselves righteous enough. It's something that we've been dressed in. Not something that we've, we could go and do. It was something we're dressed in, which implies it was done on our behalf. And that's what we're watching here. And it's, it's unfolding. And, and so he says in verse four, in the armies, they were clothed in fine linen, white and clean. They followed him also on white horses. Again, a picture of victory. Again, this is an unveiling. This is what's getting ready to happen. Now, first, we're carried up in the rapture. Now we're coming back with Jesus. For most people who are trying to put this in chronological order, the marriage supper of the lamb has already taken place in the clouds or in the sky. And now we're coming back with him to defeat the nations. Now, here's what's interesting about us being behind him. We're not coming behind him to fight. Some of you say, man, I'd like my attempt at evil. I'd like to whoop some, you know. That's not what we've been called to do at this point. 
we were witnesses to about what about what he's getting ready to do. And, and, and here's what's interesting: we're not coming back with him to fight. We're coming back with him to reign. That's what the Bible says. Not to fight, but to reign. So we see the people of the return. Second, thirdly, we see the promise of the return. Look at verse 15. It says, now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that with it he should strike the nations and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and the wrath of God Almighty. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. You talking about a victory chant? This is it. So what do we, let's break this down. From his mouth, a sharp sword. Most, most people believe that what we're reading here is, is, is Jesus's weapon will be his words. Now, how many of you are like, his words? What do you mean his words? Yeah, his words. How many of you agree his words are pretty powerful? I mean, let's think about what he's done over the ages. I mean, think of it. Uh, he spoke the world into existence. Think about the time he was there and he told the wind to be still and the seas to be still. I mean, think about that. Uh, I mean, his words, he will speak death to the attacking nations is the picture we get here. No one's gonna do hand-to-hand combat. He's gonna speak the word and conquer all of it. That's what the Bible says. When it says that rule with him with a rod of iron, here's what it means to be a ruler of a rod of iron. It means what he says and what he desires will go on. How many of you realize we're not living in a world right now in the liking of what he would prefer? (laughs) Now, some of you could get into this whole idea of the sovereignty of God and all this, but he knows we're fallen and he's making preparation for us not to be fallen any longer. When it says treads of the wine press, this is definitely language of the Old Testament. It's a picture of judgment. But here's what I want you to understand. The promise of the return. In verse 12, he has an unknown name. Now, now think about this. The Bible goes out of its way to tell us there's a name that he has that has not been revealed yet. Now, why do you think that's in there like that? Many people would say there's still a lot of mystery left when it comes to who Jesus is. How many of you that kind of excites you? It's like there's still some mystery left. There's some things that we just still, we still don't understand. Verse 13, it says he's the word of God. Verse 16 says he's the king of kings and Lord of lords. Next, we see the king's conquest. And the first thing we see there are the doomed of the return. Those who wage war against God and his people. Now, once again, an angel has a role in the last days, and that's what we're getting ready to read. Now, here's the context of what we're reading. The battle of Armageddon, this is the battle. All the nations of the world has come against God's people, okay? The nation of Israel, whether you know it or not, is going to take center stage once again in these last seven years. They are the timepiece for God's return, And all of a sudden, all this is going to happen. They're going to come against his people. The Armageddon, part of that word literally means the battle of Megiddo. Megiddo is a wide open space there in Israel that's there today. And everyone knows where it is. And what's interesting about it is Napoleon himself, when he went through conquering, 
stood on Mount Carmel where Elijah defeated the Baal prophets. It overlooks the Valley of Megiddo. And you know what he said? This would be a great place to have a battle. He himself. Pretty cool when you think about how the history and how it unfolds. So look at verse 17. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun and he cried with a loud voice saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, come, come, gather together for the supper of the great God that you may eat the flesh of the kings, the flesh of captains, uh, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and those who sit on them and the flesh of all people free and slave, both small and great. Again, this is a picture saying that no one will escape this battle. This judgment that's in place, no one will escape it. Now, here's what's interesting. If you were to, how many of you are Discovery Channel people? You like planet Earth and all that. Now, you can't believe everything they say when they start getting into dating stuff, at least I don't. But man, God's creation is remarkable. And it's amazing what he does with, especially those ideas of birds migrating and different things and why they do it and how far they go and all that. Well, there's a little Discovery Channel in here too. And here's what's interesting. Migratory patterns of birds in Eastern Europe, here's what we know. They fly down to Africa and millions of these birds fly right over Israel due to the landscape. I mean, have you ever seen a map? Here's why. The Mediterranean Sea is on the west and desert is on the east. And there's this very narrow corridor that goes down through. And guess what it is? It flies right over the nation of Israel. You can look at it on the map. You can see it's very clear, which makes a natural corridor for the birds to travel. Now, some people have gone as far to say this. This right here lets us know, (laughs) and I don't know how far to carry this, that Jesus is coming back in the fall. (laughs) I mean, really, I mean, you could look at this and say, man, maybe it is. They're leaving Eastern Europe and they're going down to Africa in the fall. I don't know how to take that. Only thing I know is it's capable of having a lot of birds in the area, okay? And and that's what we see here right in scripture. Next, we see the, the drawn of the return. Those who are drawn, look at verse 19. And I saw the beasts, the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against them who sat on the horse and against his army. It's literally a mobilization of the armies of the world. And the Bible, if you look in other places, says it will be led by the antichrist himself. Next, we see the destroyed of the return. Look at verse 20. It says, then the beast was captured and with him the false prophet who worked signs. Now the beast is a reference to the Antichrist. The false prophet is is the prophet that will lift him up and tell people to worship him. He says he worked signs in his presence by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast. That's a whole different type sermon. And those who worshiped his image. There were those who were cast alive into the lake of fire burning with brimstone and the rest were killed with the sword which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse and all the birds were filled with their flesh. How many of you look at this and say, wow, that's a lot of information there. How many of you could also look at this and say, you know something? We know how great God's love is but this is a total different side of him that most people want to ignore. Y'all, this is real. Just as real as it says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, 
this is just as real. And this is the part that our world and our, our people, people of this, they don't want to face this part of. We're talking about the epitome of deceit and evil is killed at this moment. Next, we see the king's courtroom. You see, all this is leading to something that is horrifying, to be honest with you. And, and I think many times, again, and so why don't I want you to turn over to Revelation 20. We're going to begin reading in verse 11. There's something that's going to happen after the scene that we just read about. There's going to be something called the millennial kingdom. Now, this is a part that a lot of people don't realize, but after the seven-year reign, there's going to be the battle of Armageddon. He's going to come set everything straight. He's going to get rid of evil in the world. It's going to go away, and there's going to be a thousand years of him ruling and reigning. How many of you find that pretty interesting? At the end of that thousand years, there's a judgment that's coming. There's a courtroom scene that's coming up, and here's what it looks like. The first of all, we see the setting of the place. Look at chapter 20, verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it. You see, when you look at this, the great white throne, you could break it down. Great speaks of the power of the throne. White speaks of the purity of the throne. The throne itself speaks of the purpose of the event, which is a judgment and a sentencing. Look at the next part. I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away. And there was found no place for them. The interesting thing when you look at this is who is this judge? Who is sitting on this throne? It's some seem to think it may be God the Father. And, and I think many people would assume that. But John chapter 5 verse 22 tells us, it says, For not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all his judgment to whom? His Son. So who is his son? His son is Jesus Christ. The Bible says about him, every knee shall bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus is what? Lord. So we see all this. Look at, look at verse 11 again. It says, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away. There was found no place for them. It basically says there's no place for them to hide. When Adam sinned and God was getting ready to call him on it, what was Adam doing? Hiding. Remember? He's going to say, there's no place for these people to hide. It's right there in the open. The courtroom scene, we see, number one, the summons of the people. Look at verse 12. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God. He's talking about people of great influence. Those maybe not of great influence, but those who are standing before God. And many people say, well, who are these people? I, I tend to think they're probably in four categories. I do, this is not on your outline, but I, but I believe there are the God haters. You ever seen a God hater? They hate God. They hate Jesus. They hate his word. They hate the church. They hate everything that represents God. And they do everything in their power to misrepresent who God is. Those are the God-haters. They're going to be there. A second group are the self-righteous. This is the person who believes they're too good to be judged. This is the people who say, I don't need Jesus. You know what they're literally saying? I want to stand on my own record. I don't know about you. I don't want to stand on my own record. And you don't after we get through explaining all this. Someone has said this. I think this is a great quote. There is no one so bad that they cannot be saved, nor so good that they need not be saved. That's really what it's all about. All need a savior. The procrastinator will be there. This is the person who keeps putting it off. 
Maybe they showed up last week and they thought, well, here's another evangelistic plea. Here's another, another, this is God revealing himself in this sermon, but you know something? I'm not ready for this. I'm not ready to make this type of commitment. I want to live a little bit more. I want to put it off. They know they, they need to, but they keep putting it off, keep putting it off, keep putting it off until one day they're going to be standing at this place we're talking about. Never acknowledge How about the religious? Some of y'all may be shocked to hear they're going to be there. They're going to be there. The Bible says in Matthew 7, 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my father who is in heaven. Trusting in church membership, church attendance. Do you know who the two hardest people there are to reach in this world? The rich and the religious. The rich feel like they've got everything they need. They can handle themselves. The religious believe I'm doing these things and surely that's going to get me some points. It doesn't. Look at verse 13. There's another way of looking at this. The sea gave up the dead who were in it and death and Hades delivered up the dead that were in it or in them. And so what does this mean? It, it literally, here's what it seems to mean. It means death is going to give up the body, which is the body is where all the sin took place. That's where the evil originated from. And the Hades has the soul. And both will come together to be judged. And there's no way to escape the summons of God. Next courtroom scene, we see the submissions that are presented. Look at verse 12 again. I saw the great, small and dead standing before God and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to the works by the things which were written in the books. How many of you find it alarming that God is keeping books on us? That's pretty alarming, isn't it? It's almost terrifying, isn't it? <laughs> the books that God is keeping are recording our life. Face it, we, we don't want that stuff to get out, do we? No one wants that. But the Bible says in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, for God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or evil. Romans 2 says this, in the day when God shall judge the secrets, the thoughts of men. In Matthew chapter 12, Jesus said, every idle word, every careless word, every useless word that men shall speak, they shall give account of in the day of judgment. God has recorded those things done in darkness, the secrets of the human heart, those things you've done in the world, deed, thought, and word. And you say, well, well now, wait a second. I thought all that's under, under the blood. Listen to me. It is for those who know him. Because that record is sitting there and it was stamped. Jesus took care of it. But for those who want to stand on our own record, According to what we read here at this courtroom scenes, the evidence will be revealed right there. And you know what? It's, you know the terminology I'm reading here in this text? It literally, does, it literally seems that everyone's going to be in agreement with, with the judgment when you look at it. It's almost like everyone's going to acknowledge. How do we know that? Philippians tells us that. I'll show you that in just a moment. And all of a sudden, there's all these things, the submissions, all that's out in the open. Look at verse 13, the second part. It says, and they were judged, each one according to his works. They were the ones that said, you know something? No to Jesus, I'll stand on my own record. They're all there. 
It tells us how the sentence was determined. What does that mean? It means, listen, a judgment with no mercy, no grace, no forgiveness. Some of us are sitting here today and here's what you're thinking. I thought a God, our God was a God of love, mercy, grace, and forgiveness. He is, but if you want that, you gotta do that here now. When you're standing here, there won't be any grace, forgiveness, and mercy. The Bible says in Hebrews 10, again, we don't quote these. We just want to hear about the love of God. And I'm not trying to be mean. I'm trying to warn people. Listen, listen to what the Bible says. It is a terrible thing to fall into the hands, the judgment of the living God. You know, he's literally saying, you don't want to be one of these. How about the courtroom scene, the sentencing of the people? Look at verse 14. It says, then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is called the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. There's three parts to the trial. First of all, you have the evidence that's presented. That's the truth. That tells us the books are open. Every deed, every thought, every word. Then you have the defense defending. In your defense, what will you, what will you say if you're standing there? Every one of those excuses will fall to the ground. There is none. And then you have the verdict which is given, which are the consequences. Look at it again, verse 15. Everyone's name not written in the book of life. Whose name is written in the book of life? Those who have trusted Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. They've repented of their sins. They've turned to him by faith and said, yes, I want you. I want you to be Lord of my life. That's the ones. And by the way, there's no court of appeals here. Two types of people in this room, those who have settled out of court and those who have a court date in what we just read. That's what the Bible says. So here it is. I believe Philippians chapter two, verses nine through 11. I, I believe this. You may disagree. That's fine. I, I, you could be wrong if you want to. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> I believe this is a scene at the great white throne judgment. I really do. I believe there will be those who just admit their guilt at this point. Here's what it says. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. Who is him? Jesus. Given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, what? Every knee. every knee should bow. Of those in heaven, those on the earth, those under the earth, every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Even those who will be found guilty on that day will acknowledge him finally, but it's too late. So here's the application. One day Jesus is coming back. He will be seen either as judge or savior. Those who see him as savior, here it is, will celebrate. But those who see him as judge will be condemned. Here's really the only question we can ask right now. How will you see him when he comes back? Savior? judge. Would you, would you stand to your feet, please? Father, we just come to you right now. And Lord, I know we're sitting in a room full of people who, Lord, I don't know where their heart is. Father, only you know the hearts of the people sitting in this room. And Father, I just pray, Lord, as your spirit works in the midst of our, this room, Father, I know people have been praying that, that, that great things would happen in the services you call us in our gatherings. And Father, we just pray right now for this one. And just pray, Lord, your Holy Spirit would just convict those that need to be convicted right now. Father, that you would just bring them to a point of declaration that you are Savior and Lord. And Lord, that they're willing to turn from their sin and turn to you. 
Father, we thank you for what you can, are capable of doing in Jesus' name. Amen. We're getting ready to sing a hymn of invitation, myself and Gary.